This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And they say that a week is a long time in politics, uh, and this week has been no exception. For that very reason, this may be uh, out of date by the time you hear it, but hopefully not too badly. Uh, and I say this because uh, the tr- North Sea trade body, uh, Offshore Energies UK, has sought urgent talks with the new Chancellor, uh, Nadim Zahawi, ahead of uh, draft windfall tax legislation going to its uh, second reading, i.e. for debate in the House of Commons on Monday. Now, Assuming you haven't been stuck under a rock somewhere, you'll uh, see why that may not be top of the agenda for Nadim Zahawi right now, <laughs> despite being a appointed chancellor on Tuesday night, uh, taking over from Rishi Sunak. He's one of those uh, high-profile cabinet ministers um, reportedly urging Boris Johnson to step down after the controversy with the, the former deputy chief whip, uh, Chris Pincher. So... Yeah, I mean, look, we'll, we'll get into the OEUK stuff in a second. Uh, and as you know, as we record, there's been something like 50 members of government who've resigned over this. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. Have you guys been following the stuff with uh, Boris Johnson? I mean, how likely is it that they're going to be listening to the demands of the, the oil and gas industry at this particular <laughs> moment in time, do you think? Uh, do, they, do, they, do they have enough ministers? I mean, it looked, I mean, it, it's obviously, you know, as you say, Alistair, things are changing so fast, it's hard to keep track. But as far as I could tell, there seemed to be uh, remarkably few uh, ministers left who could do anything, uh, you know, in, in, in government, let alone think about fleshing out the details of, obviously, uh, uh, an important levy for the, for the North Sea. But as you say, possibly not the top of... Uh, Mr. Johnson's concerns about his political survival. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's hard to hard to get to draw any other conclusion than than that. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I mean, look, there's other podcasts for for politics, but uh, just in case anyone hasn't stuck on the rock, as I say, we've had um, dozens of members of government resigned at, as we record now. Uh, the papers this morning, Boris on the brink. Uh, I think the Daily Record had the never-ending Tory, which I quite enjoyed. Um, <laughs> And it looks like... Uh, that is a good one. Yeah, I know. News alerts are coming in now saying he's going to resign. But I mean, at this point, obviously, who knows, right? Yeah. Who knows? Because clearly, he it does not. He gives no impression of a person who would like to go willingly. Well, indeed, indeed. So we'll see what happens with the, the Tory uh, backbencher 1922 committee as well. Anyway, let's, let's talk about the oil and gas stuff, um, because that's what we're here for. So um, on the windfall tax specifically... OEUK has issued a, a statement saying that they, they want to be the first industry that the new Chancellor talks with. They've written to him requesting this urgent talks, uh, setting out their key asks on modifying the energy profits levy. That's ahead of the, the bill going to uh, a second reading, as I say, in the House of Commons on Monday. That's assuming the government's in a, a fit state to even to even do it. Um, but that's, uh, as things stand, it's going to go to its second reading for debate in the Commons on Monday uh, the 11th. So, look, OEUK, uh, they're a lobbying group. Of course, they have to do this uh, regardless. You know, they have to make the representations uh, to the government on behalf of the industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given the lack of clarity of what the government's going to look like, um, and who knows who, who will be Chancellor in a few days' time, or indeed a few weeks, uh, you know, they might find themselves back to the drawing board. But uh, but yeah, I mean, listeners and readers will recall um, 
just a couple of weeks ago, uh, OUK had uh, talks with Rishi Sunak in Aberdeen on this particular issue just two weeks ago. Uh, and there does seem to have been some uh, concessions there. We had the, well, the first reading of the bill in Parliament this week, and that would suggest, or it has suggested, it's been confirmed, I should say, that companies will still be able to carry forward losses on decommissioning for their tax rebates. So that was something that they weren't able to do under this new levy and had left a lot of companies who obviously make massive losses on, on you know, decommissioning, removing platforms. This is a hugely costly uh, endeavour. So there's been a lot of concerns about getting those tax rebates and, and the fact that that had been blocked by the, the levy. That could obviously uh, have a very real impact on their financial results. Um, and they've also had it confirmed that platform electrification, so, you know, powering offshore installations with uh, renewable power, power from shore, power from uh, you know, floating winds, Investments in that will be covered by the, the investment allowance, which is part of the, the windfall tax levy as well. So those are two really big uh, concessions there. Um, there are a few other key asks, which are, which are quite technical, but I can go into. Um, but uh, effectively, what, what, what they're looking for is a, a, few, a few main things. A small profit, a small profit allowance for you know, smaller companies to be exempted up to a certain cap. Uh, to protect them from you know significant losses arising from the windfall tax, you've got things like uh, capital expenditure, which is arising from investments made during the COVID downturn, i.e., during 2020 when oil prices were really low, they made those investments, and now you know they're they're having to make other spending, um, which you know uh, investments made during the lows of COVID. Are, are kind of just making profits now. And then if you impose this massive tax on top of it, it means that the economics are totally skewed. So that point is to address that. And there's also things like, uh, you know, we've, we've had electrification, but ensuring the investment allowance covers decarbonisation projects. So, uh, you know, we had that concession on electrification, but I would think that broadly means other, other things like carbon capture and storage. Will the investment incentives link onto there too? Um, so again, look, between now and Monday, are they going to get a, a meeting with a chance? Maybe they will. Uh, I don't know. But uh, it, it feels unlikely. Uh, it does feel like there's a lot going on. Um, and uh, yeah, the government's priorities will be different from the industry's priorities. Doesn't mean they shouldn't be listened to then, of course. Wouldn't be the oddest thing to happen this week either. <laughs> no, no, I suppose not. <laughs> I mean, either way, it does feel like, I mean, I think that there is a feeling amongst the Conservatives, isn't there, that there is going to be, there are going to be kind of tax cuts of some sort. Um, because I think there is a, a, an acceptance in the conservative ranks that maybe the, you know, the tax burden is, I think, the highest since the 1940s. Mm. So I think there, there, there has been some discussion about you know, clearly what they can do. I mean, whether the North Sea and, and, and that, that, that profits levy can, can, can make a sufficient go of it to kind of try and, try and push back on that or whether it's, it's going to be in other areas is obviously going to be a, kind of a, a hot topic. And, uh, you know, it kind of, again, comes down to that question of, is the oil industry a kind of a convenient punching bag for for government to say, you know, we are, you know, sort of we're, we're going after the fat cats of the oil industry, uh, regardless of, 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 of the truth of the matter? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So sorry. Yes. Yeah, so you were just talking about the news alerts coming in. I'm just reading them now. Yeah. Uh, all the news outlets, as we record, are saying Boris Johnson's agreed to resign as a Tory leader, but remain and. PM until until the autumn uh, until a, a replacement can be found. So, how would that work? <laughs> yes, yes, uh, big lots of questions that we're not going to be able to answer. But uh, we maybe we should re-record the podcast later. I don't know. But uh, look, uh, yeah, I mean, so I suppose that yeah, that kind of puts us in this position of I'm not sure where the 
the Chancellor sits and all, and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, I think it was reported that the new Chancellor was one of those who was uh, seeking for Boris Johnson to step down. It's, again, being reported that he has now agreed to resign as Conservative leader uh, and will continue as Prime Minister until the autumn. So, yeah, I mean, look, we should probably talk about that a little bit. Uh, so, uh, who... Who's surprised here? I mean, he's obviously, uh, you know, he's he's held on through thick and thin, through various, um, you know, con- controversies. Is that fair to say? I think it is. Um, uh, you know, and, and and finally, this is kind of the straw that broke the the camel's back. It looks like we've obviously had some very bad results for the Conservatives in uh, local council elections recently, uh, and there's been a, a host of other issues too, um, not least uh, Partygate. Uh, so yeah, it doesn't come as a huge surprise. Um, you know, I think I think yeah, it, it, it kind of felt inevitable at this point. What do you guys think? Yeah, agreed. Although he seems to have come through so many bits and bobs in the in the last couple of years that you've thought, well, what's a, what's another scandal to to number ten at this stage? <laughs> I mean, quite often when PM start to resign, you think, oh, will will history shine upon them favourably? Will will they uh, will the Will the writers think, oh, actually, they didn't do such a bad job? I don't think it'll be the case here, but yeah. um, I was just amazed at Nadine Zahawi. I didn't know he was such a a maestro of the political dark arts of taking, that apparently threatening to resign if he didn't get number number 11, getting it and then calling on Boris Johnson to resign. It was really Machiavellian from him. Oh, was, my goodness. <laughs> very underhand. I hadn't expected that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th- I think it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because obviously Zahawi is rumoured to be eyeing uh, the top spot, isn't it? So, you know, now that he's uh, he's just next door, maybe he'll just kind of try and knock through. <laughs> Who knows? Interior design. Yeah, I, I think, you know, clearly, and, and I think you know Zahawi obviously is quite an interesting one. Obviously, he does have links to the energy industry. He not always in the best way. It's got to be said. Uh, he was uh, an advisor to Afren, which uh, collapsed in some ignominy uh, a, a few years ago, mm. with uh, amongst various investigations. But I think you know clearly uh, he seems more serious, doesn't he, than, than Johnson? Right? I think he he seems more capable. If he can take some sort of leading position in, uh, in 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 government, that seems like a sort of a positive step forwards for the country in terms maybe of of of, of how the the countries you know run a bit. I don't I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's massive speculation at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe we could maybe take a couple of minutes. What do we think about Boris Johnson's impact? In terms of the the oil and gas industry, the North Sea industry, and the the renewables sector, so we've had, we can talk about the fact that he has obviously had this uh, ambition to massively ramp up ramp up uh, offshore wind in this country. That is probably a, a positive. Let's see what the the jobs impact um, is there in terms of UK content, but certainly from a you know a, a climate perspective, that is that is clearly a positive. I think I think from the oil and gas industry's perspective, when we're just kind of reacting to this here, but I mean, if you look at the kind of the difference we've had since uh, COP twenty six, there has been quite a change in policy, and whether or not you know Rishi Sunak and various others have uh, had an impact there, uh, well, I'm sure they have, but ultimately the buck stops at the prime minister, right? But uh, you know, he had. COP26, uh, and it did feel a little bit like uh, oil and gas wasn't welcome at the party. Then we had the, the British energy security strategy, which, you know, was a to- seemed to be a total reversal. Uh, a one, uh, you know, a, a 180 uh, shift there and, you know, very much backing the North Sea oil and gas industry. A few weeks later, we've got the windfall tax, which seems like another uh, 180. Um, so, and, and now we're kind of in this position now where the industry is kind of grappling with that. So there's been some, you know, 
very real pluses and minuses. Um, you know, I, I would say across the piece generally, what we've had though, uh, I suppose during COP26 as well. To be fair, you know, there's been a lot of calls to you know wind up. North Sea oil and gas. Um, obviously, the the Scottish government has, you know, been reported around November time of being, you know, in talks to join the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance and all the rest of it. So, I, I guess there has been an attempt to be a to have a, a kind of a, a steady hand on the on the wheel there, saying, you know, we're not going to to bow down to you know cutting off domestic supply because that will just mean we'll need to uh, race to get more imports. But uh, e- equally, I, I guess there has been some shakiness there with. The changing timeline of events uh, and and you know the, the the juxtaposition of the windfall tax and the the energy security um, strategy. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll see and we'll dive into what what uh, Boris Johnson's record's been like with uh, the oil and gas industry. But uh, but yeah, I think we'll have we'll have to park that right there for now. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for more on on Boris Johnson. I'm sure, uh, and we'll move on now to the the Cromarty Firth, where uh, Hamish has been keeping an eye on things. Energy Voice presents Future Offshore, a free hybrid event at the Chester Hotel Aberdeen on Thursday the 25th of August 2022. As the transition gathers pace, join me, Alistair Thomas, and the industry leaders to shape the offshore agenda for the North Sea ahead of ONS 2022 in Stavanger. The event will feature three sessions. The first is on energy security. The energy industry must meet critical production targets whilst making the transition. As a tough winter approaches, what are the options? Session 2 looks at the North Sea as an energy transition frontier, exploring decarbonisation in the UKCS and Norway, where are comparisons appropriate and what can each learn from the other. Finally, Session 3 tackles the skills transition, what steps are required to reach the jobs and investment levels to ensure longevity of the offshore industry. In-person tickets are limited, but whether you want to join us virtually or physically at the Chester Hotel on 25th of August 2022, you can register free at future-offshore.co.uk. Okay, so uh, Hamish, uh, a lot of movement with the the Hummingbird Spirit uh, FPSO, pretty well kent vessel in the North Sea. Uh, you've been you've been keeping up with it. Uh, it feels like we've done a fair bit of vessel watching uh, recently. I suppose it's the season for it, uh, with the weather as favourable as it's ever going to be in the North Sea. So as the uh, the Petrojol for Narvan as well, that's uh, heading to the west coast for Clyde pretty soon uh, next month, I think. Um, and yeah, it feels like there's a lot of activity going on with others, uh, other big ones this week as well. But yeah, the Hummingbird Spirits, there's been a, a good bit of uh, uncertainty about its future. A great deal of speculation from us about what, what what could be the next step for it. So it's been on a Spirit Energy's chestnut field since 2008. Uh, the field has performed over and above expectations, um, but plans to decommission it were eventually re- uh, released last August. Uh, so the end of that decom campaign is nigh. The Hummingbirds uh, left the North Sea uh, around 125 miles east of Aberdeen, heading for the Cromarty Firth just under a fortnight ago. Arrived there just over a week ago. Now, we got a quote from TK while it was on its way saying that they had sold the vessel. Uh, they didn't say to who, even though we did press on the matter. Uh, so we did assume there that, and there had been vague reports as well to support this, but we assumed that it had been sold for scrap. Um, and that kind of would have fitted with TK's strategy. It is what they've done with the Fonarvan uh, and as well as the Petrojoel Banff uh, last year as well, I think. 
Um, so yeah, kind of on based on this, I kind of wrote this this wistful, nostalgic, kind of vaguely pretentious piece about the FPSO arriving in the Cromarty Firth on one of its last ever journeys. We had some lovely photos of it <laughs> arriving and the gloom being towed towards Nig ahead of being laid rest to goods. And yeah, it turns out it was com- complete drivel. It's <laughs> <laughs> complete drivel. So it's off to the Avalon field. Um, it's been bought by Ping Petroleum. And it's got many healthy and happy years to look forward to. So that'll uh, that'll teach me and us to to use my imagination. I'll stick to the cold hard facts in future. <laughs> so it's uh, why is it in Nig? It's uh, it's in Nig for a revamp ahead of heading back out to the North Sea sometime next year. I think I think it's suggested it would take about twelve months. Um, and it's a pretty crucial piece of the uh, piece of the jigsaw for Ping's Avalon project. The Malaysian operator recently got a nineteen month extension from the regulator for the license. So it's got. Time to come up with a plan to get out the fields, uh, 15 or so million barrels. Um, we had been expecting an FID this year, and I think uh, whether that is still the case, now they've got this extension, they can clearly kick that down the, down the road a bit should they, uh, should they choose to. Mm. But yeah, as part of that, it seems that the Hummingbird will be made ready for electrification too. So if I was a gambling man, I'd, I'd fathom this won't be its last job either if it's <laughs> quite an expensive thing to do. So you'd suggest that perhaps it's got a few more, uh, a bit more time to give. So yeah, good on the hummingbird. I'm, I'm glad it's got got a purpose again, and we don't have to cover the inevitable disappointment uh, when it gets sent overseas for for decommissioning. Not for a while, anyway. We might still be here in 20 years and and, and writing about it then, and <laughs> looking back on how we thought it was a uh, scrap worthy two decades ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's uh, it's it is good to see this repurposing going on, um, and it's good that it's found a you know a way forward. I, I was quite surprised. I mean, look, it's I think it's only been about on the I think it was at the Spirit Energy Chestnut Field for. A few years anyway, but it's certainly not an old vessel, not compared to what else we've got out there in the North Sea. So it, it is good to see that. What, what I was kind of taken back by is <laughs> the amount of affection that there is for it, <laughs> evidently, on uh, on social media. Like with the, the number of clicks and, and shares of it, you know, when people are getting pictures of it going into the Cromarty Firth, uh, I was quite taken back by. So, yeah, good to see. And, and I think people like who've worked on these things, they do have a, a degree of uh, nostalgia or sentimentality about it, you know, um, the 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 ship has got a soul kind of thing. So uh, yeah, I mean, look in terms of uh, paying petroleum and Avalon, yeah, you, you you mentioned some numbers there, Hamish. It certainly isn't a a large field by any stretch of the imagination, um, even for the North Sea, but. You know, if they can keep the costs relatively tight, um, presumably in set investment incentives, part of the windfall tax are actually going to help that one as they get it up and running. Um, and look, the, the oil the oil and gas prices being what they are, um, the break-even costs will be really quite attractive, I'd have thought. So, yeah, I think it's probably a good sign for most of the kind of big, uh, you know, or I should say most of the smaller uh, fields out there in the North Sea that are looking to get it going right now. If, if they can do it, I'm sure many others can too. Um, and, you know, when we think about, you know, the, the the hummingbird spirit, it's hard not to think about some of the other um, vessels that are kind of laid up in the Cromarty Firth and elsewhere. You know, we, we talk about the uh, the a couple of them in the... the uh, what's the one on the West Coast? Uh, <laughs> I've totally forgotten. Uh, Kishorn, it's in Kishorn, it's in Kishorn, it's Kishorn, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's what, there's one or two in Kishorn, isn't there? Um, or there have been in the past. Um, and there has at least one other in in Nig. Uh, I think it might be the Enquest producer. Um, so there are still vessels that are available to be um, used for these kind of uh, these kind of um, 
smaller fields, but uh, it's a question of whether or not we can get them going and, and whether they will get going. Yeah, the Voyager Spirit, I don't know how long that's been in Kishorn for for now, but quite some time. You, there had been talks of somebody reusing it, but it certainly hasn't happened yet. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll keep an eye on that, but we'll certainly keep an eye on the on the Avalon and see how that goes. Uh, do people feel it, uh, attached to um, uh, FPSOs uh, deployed out in Africa or elsewhere, or is that just a North Sea thing? <laughs> I mean, I think I think there's there's always a degree of that, isn't there? I think everywhere you go in the world, there's uh, people get a bit nostalgic. It's either it's either people feel very fondly about them, or they just say that it's uh, it's a sort of a falling down sort of rust bucket. I, mean, I think there's, there's 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 very little room for sort of the middle ground. Isn't that is something that yeah, whenever we write a vessel, it's very much you get. Oh, heaps of comments, kind of a tirade of social media comments about the food is dreadful, it's outdated, the Wi-Fi is bad, <laughs> it's filled with horrible people. The hummingbird was really an exception, which I actually quite liked, but it's not a particularly important point of the story, but it warmed the, the cockles of my heart that people were kind of generally pretty uh, upbeat about it. They said it was a nice place to visit. They commented on the unique shape. It's pretty distinctive circular FBSO. So, yeah, from a purely selfish point of view, I enjoyed writing it for, for that alone. <laughs> Makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Well, we all need our motivations for damn <laughs> Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think we'll uh, we'll park the hummingbird spirit there for now. Oh, I think we should say I think the the expectation is going to be in Nig for quite some time before it heads off to Avalon. I think it's going to be something in the region of twelve months or so. So it will be parked for a wee while. Um, but yeah, we'll certainly keep an eye on it for when it's uh, ready to head back out and uh, hopefully get some good pictures of that too. But we'll leave that one for now. Next up, we'll discuss some serious uh, LNG ambitions for Africa. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. So, Ed, uh, the world is hoping to get off from uh, Russian supply uh, and, well, Africa might hold the keys to that for, for Europe, at least. Yeah, so there's, there's, there's been some, some interesting discussion around, around Africa recently and, and, and the sort of the, the untapped gas potential. Uh, so uh, Italy, in particular, has, has, has made a really interesting sort of foray into, uh, in, in, into various parts of Africa and, and a really sort of interesting tie-up between the, uh, the government and, and sort of, you know, obviously sort of uh, state link should we say any which is a really interesting way of doing it but so uh the igu the international gas union launched their uh launched their uh, annual lng report uh this week i went along to uh, a, a a tasteful uh room in 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 a, in, a, in a swanky hotel in london uh which always is a delight of course you know, get some uh, slightly watery coffee Ooh. you know the the but the 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 croissant was pretty good but the coffee could have been better is my feeling so i don't know if they want to take that under advisement but i think we should get some reviews on here like. i think i think we should you know <laughs> let's turn this around a new focus um but so 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 among among the points that they raised was was that the the idea that there's uh, 120 million tons essentially of sort of pre fid uh, lng waiting in africa which sort of you know ready for ready to be kind of called up and, and sort of put into action 
And but it was it was a really sort of interesting kind of a contrast because on the one hand they were saying you know that clearly there is this gas, clearly the world needs it. You know, Europe with its plans to get off Russian gas, 150 BCM or so per year of of, of gas from Russia that that Europe's trying going to try and have to try and find this from somewhere else. But at the same time. Europe still seems pretty unhappy around the idea of getting long-term contracts. Um, so to, to just as a, a refresher, if you're going to build a, a sort of a, one of these big uh, LNG plants that's able to, to send out millions, to, millions of tons of uh, LNG, it's going to need a, a long-term contract in order to secure bank finance. So 10 years of, 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 a, of a contract isn't going to cut it, they were saying. It's going to have to be more in the sort of 15 to 20 years area and obviously the european union has kind of taken a position that they don't want to be taking lng in 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 15 to 20 years they you know they are really kind of you know looking at sort of maybe 2030 as the kind of the latest that they're that they're eager to kind of contract those supplies Mm. so there's this kind of tension where there's this kind of real sort of short term to medium term crunch really where you know, European LNG prices have gone absolutely bananas. Um, you know, it's 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 drawing in sort of you know sort of spot supplies from Asia and a total reversal of what we've seen in the last few years, where a, where Europe has sort of tended to be a, a sort of a market of last resort. Now, with this idea of of moving away from Russian gas, it's drawing in additional sort of short term spot supplies, which obviously are much more expensive than you would get probably if if you'd taken it under a long term contract. But at the same time, Europe is not willing to kind of take that punt and say, you know, we probably will need LNG, you know, past this cutoff point. So there's a real sort of tension there between sort of hopes and and, and sort of reality, which I suppose, you know, look, we've, we've seen a number of times, haven't we, in, in a number of different places, not least here in the UK. But it's it's it's, it's a sort of a particularly sort of stark reminder of, 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 of sort of hopes versus uh, reality. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, well, I guess... Uh, well, as you point to in your article, Ed, if, if they're not willing to take long-term contracts, you know, I do wonder, I'm sure people much more qualified are wondering about the, the financing for this kind of thing. It does look like uh, there'd be some very interesting societal benefits for parts of Africa if they could um, ramp up this kind of uh, supply capacity. Um, and, and also questions about how quickly can Europe ramp up alternatives? If they're not going to take LNG, can they get hydrogen going um, on, a, on a wider scale this quickly? It's... Um, a few interesting questions to ponder, which uh, I'm afraid you're not going to find any answers here. Just uh, rampant speculation as ever. <laughs> well, um, I mean, that's that's surely our strength, Alistair. <laughs> I think. I mean, you know, and what's 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 wrong with that? Uh, it's it's part of the charm, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think in, in terms of that speculation, obviously, you know, the the IGU sort of 120 million tons number. I mean, it seems to me a, a, a trifle speculative. I mean, I think they had something like sort of 50 million tons potential in Mozambique, which, you know, certainly there's, you know, obviously potential for uh, additional gas supplies from Mozambique. But looking at the sort of the challenges, looking at the the sort of the the on the ground problems, right? I mean, I think obviously Mozambique in particular is is struggling with with an Islamist insurgency in the north, which has put uh, Total's big big Mozambique LNG project into, into question. Exxon's thinking about its own big LNG project in Mozambique, but again, that's you know clearly sort of you know on the back burner until until the you know the insurgency problems are sort of found out. So, I mean, there's there's everyone speculates, Alistair. Even <laughs> even the veritable uh, big brains of the IGU are, are taking a bit of an informed punt. So we can we can we can take solace in that then, can't we? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> We're doing nothing wrong here. Yeah. So I mean, let's just say let's just say that they are um, 
you know their, their numbers are solid um and and you know what what areas of africa are going would, would really benefit from this kind of ramp up um you know from from a societal perspective an economic perspective you know, what what would this what would this do if if this could actually be achieved for them as well as obviously there's the benefit to Europe but just talk about that side a wee bit I think I think it's a, it's a, it is a really interesting point and one that the IGU was keen to uh, keen to keen to point to they were saying you know that there would be real sort of societal and economic benefits to uh, to local economies as a result and I think that is clearly something that you the the, the impression that you get when you speak to you know various uh, you know, sort of African delegations. I mean, there was a there was a there was a conference recently where the uh, the Angolans turned up, and they were they put a, a really sort of a strong you know sort of case for ongoing sort of natural resource development in order to you know sustain their economy, to create jobs, to 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 get that cash flowing in. Right. Otherwise, what are the alternatives? Is it aid? You know, clearly that is not really a solution. So. In terms of the sort of the sheer numbers, the sheer you know amount of revenue that could come to say Mozambique, it would be incredibly transformative. Um, I mean, it it could really turn around Mozambique, for instance, and its and its uh, and its opportunities and its future. I mean, look, obviously there are there are challenges around those assumptions, aren't there? I mean, I think you know people talk about the resource curse, people talk about you know sort of Nigeria. And the way that it's been a major oil producer for so long, and yet still, it's got the—I think it's the highest share of its of its of its population uh, living without access to electricity. Mm. So just you know, kind of getting those uh, those petro or LNG dollars rolling into an economy is not in itself a solution. Obviously, there are kind of you know governance issues. Mozambique also has uh, some 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 problems around hidden debts. There was you know, which is kind of an ongoing issue. And, and, and various contracts they'll handed out to shipbuilders that clearly should not have been. So there are there are kind of concerns about about just how you know governments can handle that kind of flow of revenue. What's that what's the capacity to to, to absorb you know that 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 sort of potential deluge of, of, of cash. But I mean I've got to say, you know, at the moment that kind of feels like uh like a sort of a remote concern, doesn't it? I mean I think you know the idea about about you know trying to, to to get those projects up and running is is kind of you know front and center in terms of the challenges and you know do banks want to finance it right i mean i think you know the uk your uk uh, export finance the the export credit agency has made it pretty clear that it's got no interest in hydrocarbon developments you know really into the future mm. uh other european institutions feel similar so um yeah i mean it, it there there is a potential for transformation but it, it it feels to me like the risk is more around another opportunity missed i think you know unless things really change mozambique's not going to be producing that extra 50 odd million tons of lng per year indeed indeed okay well thanks very much for that ed um and i think uh well for now anyway that is it for this latest episode of energy voice out loud and you know goodbye boris goodbye i mean my goodness who who saw it coming well maybe everybody did uh, but we'll uh, i'm sure we'll have more to say about that next week uh, or maybe we'll talk about something completely different i don't know uh, we'll we'll see where the the lay of the land lies uh, anyway yeah thank you to to hamish and to ed for joining me i've been alsa thomas and thanks for listening Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector.
Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.